And thank you to those servants who go to take care of the littlest among us. Um, I confess, I personally like to hear the little the chatter and the cry of children. At the same time, I think they're happier when they have more toys and some folks to love them. And I know it gives parents a break uh, to be able, anxiety-free, to be a part of worship like it's happening today. And hopefully you are experiencing a little bit of what I'm experiencing too, which is um, for the first Sunday of the year, which is typically, stereotypically, a Sunday uh, when many folks kind of mail it in when it comes to church, you have shown up and you have brought your whole selves to this time of worship. And it is a significant Sunday. As we gather this morning, it is an opportunity to set apart servant leaders for the church. In many ways, these are the leaders who have a front row seat for so much of church life, the joys and the drama, in many ways, they take responsibility for the good conduct and the good order of the life of the church. And yet, they are not paid. They are not authorized with any sort of executive authority. It is by the powerful persuasion of love and service that the deacons of the church go about doing what they do. And so I tip my cap to you for saying yes and I commend each one of these candidates to you. One among them has never served in the office of deacon before, and that's Mark Kovalevsky. And so we're going to be breaking this ordination installation into two parts. After this time of reflection together on God's word, we're going to invite Mark forward. And as is one of the oldest traditions of the church, and I'm not talking about Yates Baptist Church, I'm talking about the church all the way back in time. The community that has called him out is invited forward to lay hands on him, to say a prayer, offer a word of blessing or solidarity with him as he enters into this time of service. A little later, we will invite all five of this year's class of deacons to make their way forward and our deacon chairperson, Sam Haithcock, is going to be leading us in a corporate litany of installation, and he will bless uh, each and every one with his own prayers. But as we begin today, it is with a sense of solemnity for what it is that we experience, because as I look back in the scriptures, I realize that there is a great deal more that is spoken of and written about and shared with respect to those who are called deacons than, for instance, those who are called pastors. And I think this is important for us to recognize that from earliest times, the church called out from among the congregation, those men and those women, who were called to special service. And sometimes that service was so ordinary looking on the outside, it could be easily overlooked, like the men in Acts chapter 6, who made sure that the widows and and those who were of other ethnicities were getting a fair distribution of the community resources, literally serving them at tables, waiters. Then there are those who were entrusted with some of the deepest trust of the church, a deacon like Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, whom the apostle Paul gave his letter to the Romans 
Not because, oh, Phoebe, I guess you're going to Rome. Could you take this on to the church? But entrusting her as the courier across a great deal of space to carry those words of introduction and instruction to the church in Rome, and not only delivering those words, likely being the one who read those words, and most scholars tell us also probably the first one to interpret Paul's words for a church that inevitably has questions about what Paul has to write. That is not anything new. And there in the sacred trust between the table and the word, the deacons operate for all of us. How will they do it? Well, instead of looking at some of the familiar and traditional texts, either about qualifications or about the story of the origin of deacons, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. And there we will hear words of counsel from Peter to a church that is scattered across the Roman Empire, individual Christians like stones that Peter is calling toward a vision of being the construction materials of a building God is building all around the world called the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 read this way. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Men, the end of all things is near. You might expect me to take that, put it on a sign, stand out on the corner, and, and wave it. The end. Sometimes churches become so consumed with questions and talk about the end, we don't even know where we began. But I want to remind you that in the New Testament language, there are two different words that we often translate as end. And the first word is the word eschaton, and that means end, like the end of a life, or the end of an era, or the end of a career, or the end of the line at the cafeteria. The end. There's another word, uh, the word telos, and this is a word we also translate as end. In some ways, it overlaps with eschaton, but what it points to is something more like a goal or the peak of a mountain if you're climbing it. The telos answers the question of what's the point? To what ends, we might ask. And so I'm not going to be speculating on the eschaton with you. Um, I will not worry you. Uh, with what I do not know. But let us today just simply take heart with our Lord Jesus who told his disciples long, long ago about that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
the end to which Peter is referring today is the second kind. What's the goal of this thing called church? What's the point of our discipleship? The end is near, he tells us. God is drawing this work of salvation ever closer to its final maturity. And what are we going to do with that awareness? We don't know how much time we have to spend it, but as the wizard Gandalf once counseled a very anxious hobbit named Frodo, when they were lost together in a deep cave, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And in order to make the best use of that time, I want us to hear this very focused call to discipleship from Peter to this church that's scattered here and around the world. These are the things we hear, that you as deacons will lead us toward this year and in the years to come. And we find out that it involves not just one end, but many. Verse 7, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. It is the end of wishful thinking, of idle speculation. It is the end of allowing the world to win the tug of war over your mind, over your heart, and over your loyalties. It is now the beginning of prayerful devotion that will set your hearts, that will set your minds on those things that are of God. To be able to see through and to see past the distractions and perceive with clarity the vision that Jesus Christ has given us of the reign of God in our midst. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, Jesus said. And all these things that you worry about, they'll be added unto you. Don't worry about those things. Pray and look for God, and wherever you perceive God working, join God there. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is the end of apathy, and the end of indifference, the end of exclusion, the end of animosity. It's the beginning of telling the truth about God and making God's way your life and the life of this church. This is how we're going to be known in Durham. This is how we're going to be known around the world by the very character of God, that God is love. And the Apostle Paul taught a very cranky and divided church in Corinth. What that means, love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It is the end of wall building. It is the beginning of bridge building. 
Anxiety and fear can lead us to close our ranks, to close our doors, to close our hands, to close our hearts to those who are new or who are different or who are unfamiliar, and yes, those who are unpleasant. But to remain open to them makes us vulnerable, and it may demand that we reroute our own lives to make space and to make room for someone else. Yet the scriptures over and over again teach us in story and in command that the people of God are going to be the people that hold that place that welcomes, that welcomes as God welcomes us. And in very compelling ways, Jesus reminds us that our relationship to others reflects how we actually welcome Jesus himself. And elsewhere in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, we are reminded, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. God speaks and God works in those transformational spaces where strangers become neighbors when you risk an earnest word of welcome. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. It is the end of hoarding. It is the beginning of generosity. Give. Jesus said, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured in your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All the piety in the world and all our religiosity is bankrupt if we don't put it into action. James told his Christian flock in no uncertain terms, faith without works is dead. And if your spiritual vitality seems low, if your Bible study is little more than dusty words, if your prayer feels hollow or empty, then perhaps a season of lavish, of joyful giving is what you need and what we need. Because when we give of the abundance that we have received. It brings authenticity. It brings vitality to all of our devotional experience. Practice your generosity with the many gifts of your good life and see what God will do. Verse 11, part one. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. It is the end of careless words, and it's the beginning of creative words. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty or careless word they have spoken, every word. Because the scriptures tell us and take far more seriously than we do that our words have the power to build up and tear down, to plant or to pull up. The scriptures begin with a story of God creating the world with words. And God said, and it was, words really can make worlds. And the words that you offer in the lives of hurting 
or lonely or lost people can make all the difference. The words that you bring in the face of conflict or controversy can be healing or hurtful. Your private words, your public words, your worship words, and your work words, your speaking and when you choose to be silent, they all have the potential to join the creative work of God, or it can subvert it. Seek the wisdom to know the difference. Verse 11, part two. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. It is the end of self-centeredness and the beginning of other-centeredness. True service builds community. And often very quietly and unpretentiously, it goes about caring for the needs of others. It draws and it binds, it heals, and it builds. It's the life lived by God in this world in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who when the Philippians sang one of their praise songs, sang it this way, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the cross's death. And in dying to yourself, you also are raised with Christ into the amazing, wonderful, transformational new creation that is the salvation of God. So there you are. And Mark and the rest of you, if you don't feel up to that task, it's okay. We are not calling you where we will not follow. And I want to assure you that this church did not call you only because we believe in you. We do, probably more than you believe in yourself. It's also even more so because we believe God is leading us through you. So you servant leaders have courage. Lead us in the humble way of the servant. I am with you. We are with you. And together, we'll find all God has for us to do together. And we'll give thanks, and we will give praise to God together. In the end, that call to be a community of worship and praise of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the end to which all of these things and all of this points. But I'll give Peter the last word on it. Or maybe, maybe it's really the first word. In all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.